This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Thank you for joining me. Nice to have you along. As recently as Sunday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce insisted schools across Ontario would reopen to in-person learning next week. The following day, yesterday, Premier Doug Ford announced the province would be going to all virtual learning after the spring break because of new information received on rising cases of the COVID variants. Now, there's a call by Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca for the premier to fire Lecce because he says Lecce no longer has the confidence of the people. This is topic number one as we welcome the Tuesday strategy panel, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario finance minister. Welcome all. Hi, Jane. Hello. Thanks, everyone. Great to be here. Charles, what do you make of this about face and direction on the schools? Oh, a lot of mixed messages, obviously. Um, and to some degree, uh, it looks really poorly on, on Lecce and the, Prime, and the Premier's office um, to suggest that, uh, you know, we've made a decision and then immediately following a different decisions made by the Premier uh, puts into question Lecce's, uh, you know, longevity on the job. And I say that only because it's typical of what has happened in the past with Ford and some of his ministers. It happened with Rod Phillips, obviously, when he was when he spoke um, contrary to the premier. It happened with Vic Fidelli. Vic Fidelli, sorry. It happened with some of the backbenchers. And uh, I suspect Lecce as well, as well as uh, the minister uh, of municipal affairs, with all this negative discussions around the MZOs and developers in question, uh, Doug, I mean, Mr. the Premier will have to, he normally has in the past made decisions to put them aside to protect his interests and saying he's fighting for the people regardless of what his ministers may or may not be doing. Well, that's interesting because there has also been a fairly lengthy call by the Zoomers group CARP uh, for the Premier to fire his long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton. He has n- not gone there at all. And and I sort of think about Stephen Lecce along the same lines as a minister Fullerton. It feels like there is a loyalty between the Premier and Fullerton and is there, you know, in terms of, of that, Karen, do you think there is a strong connection between the Premier and Stephen Lecce, or had Stephen Lecce been going vogue, a rogue, sorry? <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I I, um, I I think it actually reflects poorly, not just on the Premier and the Minister of Education, but on public health, to be candid, because I watched the Premier, you know, announce with, with conviction that the schools were safe and it was important to keep the kids in school and Sick Kids has been saying we need to do everything possible to keep the kids in school and very compelling messaging around, you know, the precautions they've taken, the measures they've taken, the, the, uh, the case counts in the schools. And then not an hour later, he's overruled by Toronto Public Health. And it seems to me that that didn't need to play out that way. And it's not those, it's, it's one of those instances where the public looks at it and says, I don't know if anybody knows what they're doing. And it's not... Um, it's easy to point the finger at the Premier Ford because he's the one who stands at the podium. But the reality is there is a big question mark about what is going on. And now, you know, there's a sense that, oh, the teachers need to get vaccinated during the break. Well, okay, what's happening with that? And, you know, we spoke on the panel about, um, you know, one public health, you know, unit closing schools, and it, it felt a little arbitrary. And then an hour later, mm-hmm. Toronto closes their schools, and then, and then now Schools are closed indefinitely. <laughs> and so it almost seems to me as if Premier doesn't want to talk about schools anymore. And so he's just making the decision to take it off the table because there's other issues he needs to focus on. But the public is left wondering, what is, what is really happening? Right. And, and how do we really get control of this virus? And are we actually just responding to knee-jerk reactions as opposed to, again, more strategic approach about vaccinating, rapid testing, 
isolating and, and, and you know you're just as it's a bit of head scratch for the candidate. Well we and we'll talk about all of that. John, as far as Premier Ford and Minister Lecce uh changing their tune in a matter of hours, is that uh, the Premier just under so much pressure that he realized that the science is showing it doesn't make sense to send the kids back to school next week? Well, I, I would say this, Jane, and I think that knowing the premier as I do, and, and for as many years that I have, he is he is a very loyal person, uh, and and the reason why he sticks by his ministers uh, as long as he can is because of that loyalty, and and that you know as as Charles will know, and certainly Karen as well, both uh, both uh, successfully elected uh, politicians. Uh, loyalty goes a long way, and and but but at certain points you have to kind of you know reassess and, and adjust, and, and that's why cabinet shuffles happen and and so forth. And I think that you know there's more 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 of an argument now that that a cabinet shuffle is is probably needed to mm. kind of you know to just to reshape uh, and, and and retune how things are going. So I suspect that might 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 be coming into play. But you know this is and we've talked about this before where this is a constant evolving issue and issues. And we're seeing that not just in Ontario, but we're seeing that in other provinces where leaders, premiers, are adjusting to the news that they get on a day-by-day basis. And, and I think a lot of them, and I'm, I'm talking about Premier Ford here specifically in our province, you know, is trying to do what he can and has been to try to keep, you know, people, kids at school because parents, by and large, have overwhelmingly wanted their kids to go to school. So he's been trying to do that and keep that balance. He's been trying to keep businesses and small businesses and others in the supply chain going as much as he can for the sake of the economy while still trying to make sure that that the health numbers are being are, are being looked at. But when his health officials are saying one thing and then they change their mind or they do other things, uh, you know, uh, on their own, uh, then he's got to course correct and adjust. And I think that's what we saw with the schools in that we saw a number of regions, both Peel and Toronto and others, that decided to, that their health officials decided they were going to close the schools. Well, that's that's a decision that's made that, that takes a, a big chunk of the population, the kids in Ontario, out of school. So then it would make sense for for the province to go and shut down schools or across the province, especially because the numbers are still going up. There's still that concern. And their concern, of course, was that if kids are going to be at home uh, during spring break, or I should say March break, or extended March break, I guess, then, then obviously the, the chances of them contracting COVID and bringing them back to school uh, was increased. So I think it was more of a proactive precautionary thing to be able to do, given the fact that the whole province is shut down for for, uh, for the next few days. So I but, think it was one but, of those moves that he needed to do. But strategy-wise, and I'll go over to Charles for this, strategy-wise, wouldn't it have made more sense when you were starting to lock down the province, uh, ramping up for stay at home before the Easter weekend to say, that's it. We only have four days where kids would, tech- would be back in person and then they're off again for another week. Why not have implemented all virtual learning after the Easter weekend, Charles. And that's an, uh, an excellent question. And and I, I, John, I have to I have to disagree, man. I don't think any of this is being proactive at all. I, I think the premier, unfortunately, is is being subjugated to these new variants. Everything's happening. He is being reactive. Some would say he's over his head. I think uh, uh, Martin Recon made that reference in his recent article. Some may say that he's just shooting from the hip and trying to make things, trying to improve things as best he can under the circumstances. But you're right, there's, there's the kids and younger people are now being hospitalized. There are more uh, cases of ICU. There are increasing numbers on ventilators, all of which are going up. And they're at the same level as they were this time last year. So I think part of the decision to close the schools wasn't so much a health-related issue, and I hate to say that, I think it's political, because if he doesn't do it, the regional governments Mm -hmm. will exercise their right, just as Peel did, to do so. And he'll even look more embarrassed, because those issues would be resolved locally as opposed to being provincial. Karen, speaking of politics, uh, I would like to get your thoughts on the way in which the opposition leaders are dealing with the school situation. Del Duca calling for Lecce to be fired. Andrea Horvath, uh, as as much as I know her heart is in the right place, I think she makes parents, she makes us all feel a bit uneasy when she gets behind the podium and talks about how unbelievable everything is, how stressful everything is. It just doesn't, it's not reassuring, it's not settling, it just makes it all feel worse. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the schools and, uh, you know, on the one hand, and what we're going to do about, you know, firing Minister Lecce, which I don't think that's a solution. And 
The other percolating issue, which people are not really talking about as they should, is the fact that 30% of people over 80 still haven't got vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And so the school for me, you know, there was, you know, everybody agreed that at one point in time, the last thing you do is shut down schools. Like, because schools are so important, not just for kids and for learning, but for families who have kids in school and the disruption in their, in their day. So that there was kind of a general understanding that schools were the last to close. And yet now schools feel like they're, schools feel like it's, it is political. And, and to Charles' point, like Ford just had to because then the public health officers would have acted independently, further undermining his credibility. And it's very unfortunate that it got there. And I think it got there because there's not a real clear communication strategy. But, you know, the role of the opposition, you know, really at this point in time could be more helpful in saying, why aren't people getting vaccinated? Where are the outbreaks? How do we better support schools? And it's not firing Minister Lecce. It's, it's really, you know, what, what, is the, what is the information telling us about how we can respond better to the situation that is increasingly feeling like it's getting out of, out of yeah. our hands? Agreed. I'm speaking with our Tuesday strategy panelists, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Souza, Jane for Libby. Um, we are hearing more criticism of the Ford Tories that they've lost control of what's happening in the third wave of the pandemic. They're reacting to a situation that is very quickly, if not already, out of control, becoming out of control. Understanding and respecting you are not epidemiologists or, or scientists, but you are strategists. What should be done strategically? John, I'll start with you to get the ICU numbers down currently at 623 and the overall COVID case numbers down. Well, I think just getting more and more people vaccinated, I think, is, is one of the key things. And, and I'm, I'm hardened, you know, to hear that over the last little while, many, more and more people are, are, are getting vaccinated. The numbers are seem to be going up. Uh, I think that's obviously key because that, that's one of the key factors to try to, to try to prevent the spread is for people to get vaccinated. I, I'm also, you know, and you also get confusing remarks and are confusing comments from, from health officials regarding various vaccines. We just heard about Johnson and Johnson and, uh, that they're in the U.S. that they're they're putting a pause on it mm-hmm. and and some of the others and that kind of throws not only the the political side off but it throws health officials off as well because again they're readjusting there's there's some sort of anticipation that we're going to be getting these kinds of vaccines and then you're hearing one jurisdiction or another sort of delaying them or causing some problems or putting a pause on them then all of a sudden that throws the numbers out of out of whack but I do think that that you know there is there's got to be uh, a better handle with respect to to the numbers that are that are of people going into ICUs and, and hospitals who are those folks how long are they staying in there uh, there's now you know obviously the government is putting in place uh, you know actions to be able to say okay well if one hospital is full we're going to shift them to other hospitals but you know this this new variant and and the, the the third wave and there are other waves those are issues that we need to know because obviously 2021 was supposed to be a better year yeah. uh than 2020 uh and it certainly it's better in one point and that is that we're getting vaccines and vaccines are getting out there but but if we're still getting variants and, and if the other variants are coming along down the road that's something that we need to be get we get we get a better handle on or else we're never going to get to the end of this charles what about your thoughts on the strategy moving forward we can't go back and it you know arguably has turned into a bit of a mess in recent days and weeks. Where do we go from here? Yeah, uh, you know, John's absolutely right. The, the, going forward, and it's just about vaccines, and I think the premiers are making an announcement today mm-hmm. around providing more vaccine in those hotspots, more mobile teams. People are frustrated with the mixed messages. Frontline workers and TTC workers and others are not being vaccinated. They have to be seniors. They're about 67 or 70% now vaccinated, uh, and that will improve. Uh, but yeah, it's a tough thing that they're um, they're enduring. It's not just it's not just Ontario, right? Other parts of the world are faced with it, but Ontario and Canada, while numbers have been modest in respect to deaths, which is a real critical issue, it is increasing. And I worry about the variants, like like all of us do, and I worry about uh, our younger generation as well as our seniors. But we got to get those vaccines to everybody. And Karen, what what do you think about in terms of strategy, especially for Premier Ford? I mean, a poll came out last week saying that 65% of people in this province feel that he is doing a poor job of handling the pandemic. How does he get this thing back under control so we can feel reassured by what he's doing and what he's saying? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, sort of a two-pronged approach, and one is the vaccines that have been talked about. Um, the other is that I think there needs to be a different spokesperson for the province. 
that I think Ford, um, for the time being, anyway, probably needs to designate somebody who can deliver a clearer message about how we're going to move forward with with in face of the increasing numbers and in face of the um, the new variants, and for his own sake too, because you know at, at some point we all become ineffective communicators and people stop listening. Mm-hmm. And so now there might, this might be the time to figure out who speaks on behalf of public health and the government on the strategy moving forward. That's a good point. And, like Dr. Tian, right? He's the new Randy Hillier, um, mm-hmm. General Hillier, sorry. Um, and he, he, we have yet to really see him address the public address reporters. And, and that could be very, you know, that could help pivot and crystallize the message for people. But, but the other thing, and again, not to harp on it, but the vaccines are going to take time to roll out. We know that. But, and, I, and I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of unused rapid test kits in a warehouse that have not been distributed. And I don't know why they wouldn't be on the Amazon sites and the Canada Post sites and the meat processing facility sites, sites that we know that outbreaks happen places we know that people are going to work sick because they don't have an option. We should get those test kits there, helping those facilities continue to manage because the reality is we've closed all of small retail, driving even more traffic to Amazon. So it's just going to get busier, and we already know that's a hotspot. And so it's, it's a combination of things that I think need to happen to help regain the narrative. Sorry, I mentioned Randy Hillier there. He's the renegade MPP. Rick <laughs> Hillier is the former general. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a big distinction. Uh, now, how about this, guys? Uh, even Mayor Tory was saying in the last day there needs to be clear messaging around who's entitled to receive the vaccine and how they are to get their shots. Remember, I mean, it's going back several weeks, maybe even months. We were hearing about this big campaign for the vaccines that was going to be coming. Uh, John, so far that hasn't happened. Maybe, as Mayor Tory says, uh, uh, some sort of large campaign to give people more information and to make them feel more informed and empowered would help this process. Sure. And I think that you can never go wrong with more information. And, and certainly, you know, in the world that we live in with social media and, and all of the information, you're getting a lot of mixed messages that, that have caused that. But I do think that the government needs to be able to be a bit more specific as to, you know, he, he, he's gotten this. You can't get more clear than what the premier has been able to say in, in every one of his press conferences about getting vaccinated and get out to get vaccinated. I've seen ads on TV now where where they're saying, you know, here's a number, here's a website, and, and, and getting vaccinated. I, I've tried a couple of times now to, to get on, and I've, I'm on a couple of waiting lists uh, for my own uh, from that perspective. So I do find get I do find enough websites to go on, uh, and they're pretty clear as far as the questions that they ask, and then they tell you, okay, well, you're on a waiting list, so you're, you're sort of waiting, and that's fine, because other people that need to be vaccinated are getting vaccinated. So I do think that message needs to continually get out there and get become more forceful. Okay, panelists, we have some callers that want to get in on the conversation. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Tony and Keswick, go ahead. What would you like to add? Yeah, just a couple of things. I just got back to get my shot in the new market at the drugstore there, and there's hardly anybody there getting their shots. Uh, you know, people should get out there and uh, one way or the other get them done. Uh, my other little thing is I was in a restaurant business for 40 years, and uh, I these poor restaurant people are, are are on a yo-yo kind of thing. They got the open, close, open, close. And the, I don't understand if the premier, is it getting consulted by the restaurant association? Because he should, because there's a lot of things they do there. Like when they allow 10 people in a the restaurant, they don't take square footage in accounting. Because I, I was at a place in, in uh, up in that, uh, was it there? Uh, Gravenhurst, sorry. And uh, there's a tiny little breakfast place. And then they had 10 people there. And it was just pretty crowded. Right. Where, then I went to uh, uh, another pl- uh, venue uh, up in Bracebridge, uh, the Chuck's, you know, Chuck's Roadhouse. It's huge, and they can only let 10 people in, and, and you know, I, they, these poor people are losing, yeah. and there's no reason why they couldn't expand it by the square footage of the, of the place. I'm going to let you go, that. Tony. I'm going to let you go. I get your point. Uh, Charles, that certainly didn't help in all of this. The opening and the closing and the patios are open and now they're closed and 50 people inside and 10 people inside. Meanwhile, the case numbers were going up at the same time. Yeah, it's so frustrating. And I, and I feel for the small businesses and local communities and those restaurants who are opening and closing at, at, at a moment's notice with a real 
um, ability to protect their inventory and so forth. It's just terrible for them. Um, the patios are open, but I guess overall, to the point made earlier, those that want those vaccines, let them have it. Supply as long as the supply is there and the seniors are not being shut out. Let's get it out, and there is enough supply, and let everybody of every age group receive their vaccines. Just the demand will exist, and there are some that won't want it. But so, are you to, saying, to, Charles, to, to you just just open it up to everybody? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I'm I'm saying um, give give everyone the vaccine. Absolutely, give the front lines and the and and those that are most exposed the priority. But if there's supply, and there is supply, let everybody get it. Well, what I find perplexing, Karen, um, it was a story we were running this morning on Zoomer Radio News. Those 60 and over only represent 15 percent of the third wave COVID cases, but they still represent the 60 plusers, 90 percent of the COVID deaths. So we have a lag in the over 60s getting their shots as well, even though the system is fully open to them province wide. I agree. And that's, I I think, one of the more troubling undercurrents of of the discussion, because up until now, it was an issue of vaccines not being available. But to Charles's point, they are now available. And but the uptake is not what we would expect, given that our hopes and dreams rest on the vaccines being taken. And so I think that there does need to be some kind of campaign, because the mixed messaging around the AstraZeneca the, the, you know, the back and forth about, you know, who can get it when, the opening and closing of the Metro Toronto Convention Centre, you know, all of those things just leave the public not sure whether they can go, whether they should go, whether they can sign up, should sign up. And it's, um, I, I do think it is time to really not say to people, you know, if you want a vaccine, but really push why we all need vaccines. And even in the hotspots in Toronto, I know um, just next to me, there's a, it's a hotspot and not, south of where I work is a hot spot and it's open to 18 and older. Mm -hmm. And I know that my younger staff that are eligible to get shots are not getting shots. So we've done a push now at my workplace to make sure that everybody gets their shots. Very good. Okay, let's go to Susan in St. Catharines. Before we change topics and talk about the NDP and Liberal conventions over the weekend, Susan, what would you like to add? I honestly am not happy with Mr. Ford. I think he's been reactive and not proactive all the way along, and we could have prevented some of this. I know there's a high number of cases, but people have to realize that vaccines are very important to protect you. It does not get rid of the the virus. The virus is still going to be there, so we've got to get the vaccines, and I think it's spreading in workforces where people have to go to work. And so it needs to be opened up province-wide so that anybody 18 and over can get it to help prevent hospitalization. Okay, Susan, thanks for your call. Just a few more minutes here, strategy panelists. Um, John, in terms of, and I'm sure you were in and out watching a little bit of the NDP and liberal conventions, the federal liberal and NDP conventions, uh, your thoughts? Well, I, of course, I tried hard to keep uh, keep attention and, and watching the two uh, conventions, or at least paying attention to the news coming from those. But you know, this is the first time, and and, and I think I might have mentioned on, on one of our shows that I was a delegate to my convention, the Conservative Convention, back uh, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and, and it was the first time for for virtual convention. So the NDP and the Liberals were facing their uh, uh, first time for virtual conventions, and I think by and large they they went well. But the the, the challenge is that they both had it on the same weekend, and I think this is the second time or the third time that it's happened where the Liberals and the, and the NDP have had their conventions on the same weekend. Therefore, you know, getting these these mixed messages and and uh, one over overpowering the other. But you know, I think it's a race for the two of them as who which one could be the farthest left party. Uh, in Canada, given the fact that they all talked about universal basic income, pharmacare, minimum wage, uh, and uh, and of course the NDP poking, poking fun at the Liberals, saying, "Well, they're just pretend uh, progressives. We really are the progressives." So there's been that battle between the two of them, and I think strategically it makes sense for the Liberals because they want to, you know, make sure that they get the NDP vote out there in the next election, and the NDP want to make sure that they hold their vote. So they want to say that we're the true progressives. I think that's what transpired over the over the weekend. John, I want to get your take on this as well. I had uh, Nathaniel Erskine Smith on last week, the MP in the Beaches, who was he's been backing the idea of universal basic income, and he said a lot of conservatives are on side with this messaging. What would you say to that? 
Well, I, I don't, I don't think, I, I think he's probably out of touch with respect to how conservatives view the issue. I think that there's, there's a lot of issue, a lot of concern with respect to basic income and how it's going to work. You know, of course, we had, there was a pilot project here in Ontario that Charles mm-hmm. can speak to, uh, that when Premier Ford got, became uh, Premier, he, uh, dismantled. Uh, I think there's a lot of problems with it as far as who gets it, how they get it, and, and what's the ramifications of people that get the basic income. So there's still a lot of, a lot of work to be done to sort of really appreciate what what the benefits are. Well, we know what the benefits are, but what are the ramifications of that in some cases? Well, Charles, under your premier, Kathleen Wynne, that was the, the pilot project that John is referencing. That was actually proving to be successful. Yeah, it was, I put in one of my budgets, and it was meant as a pilot to determine its viability. Um, you know, and, and, and it, it was, and I suspect the federal government will probably institute a, a pilot initially. I mean, it's going to cost 85 to $93 billion additional to, based on what already exists with social support. So it's a big bill, and it's a, it has to be sustainable. And that would be my question is, how can we afford to maintain it? And how can we encourage uh, people working and so forth in respect to this basic income? It's necessary to support those most vulnerable. Uh, but on the other side, um, these were both campaign-style camp, uh, uh, conventions. Um, and National Pharmacare was also another one that we had put in, our, in one of our budgets and provincially, and it's now been adopted federally uh, when they brought in Eric Hoskins. Uh, we'll see you know, how much that will take and how much that will cost. Um, high-speed rail was another big piece of the Liberal Convention, and that's been talked about for the last 30 years. And I think John would agree it's essential, but no one seems to act on it. So we have a lot of work ahead. Um, I guess my biggest look at this is Elections Canada. They're gearing up for a summer election. They're getting themselves prepared. And both leaders are saying, we don't want this election. But both are obviously getting mm-hmm. ready for one. Mm-hmm. Karen, uh, you have the final word on these federal conventions over the weekend. Well, just, you know, um, as, a, as an observer, you know, I think that there were some unforced errors for the Conservative Convention, no question, and less or so for the NDP. Um, and the Liberals are clearly, to Charles's point, gearing up for an election campaign and setting the stage for it. But I, I just find that, um, to, to be candid, I mean, I just felt that the Liberals and, uh, and NDP might just be a little bit out of touch with the public because they're advocating for bigger government, more um, government programming, more government largesse. And the reality is the public's like, can, what we've seen to date actually hasn't been that remarkable in terms of rolling out vaccines, purchasing vaccines, distributing vaccines, getting vaccines in people's arms. So before you go bigger... Can't you just focus on getting what needs to get done now? Mm-hmm. And, and, and maybe a little less government in the future is actually where the public is going to be. But we'll see how it all, all unfolds. It'll be a curiosity to me to see where the public's at. We will leave it there for this week. Thank you all for your time. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. All the best, guys. All the best Thanks. to you. Stay safe. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Jane Brown for Libby Zneimer. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back, what the Air Canada deal means for passengers, employees, and Canadian taxpayers. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We Canadians have been told to expect more details in the coming days on Air Canada's plans for ticket refunds. News broke yesterday afternoon that representatives with the pandemic-battered airline have reached a deal with the Trudeau Liberals to access up to $5.9 billion in loans and equity financing from the public purse. Finance Minister Christian Freeland says as part of the deal, passengers who did not travel because of the pandemic will get their money back. She says Air Canada will repay the loans, which come with strict conditions to protect Canadian travellers, Canadian tax dollars, and Air Canada workers. The package will also see the federal government pay a half a billion dollars for a 6% stake in the country's biggest airline. In addition, the airline is committed to cap executive compensation and to restore service to more than a dozen regional airports. Our coverage begins with Mark Hancock, 
Hancock, president of CUPE, which represents some of the workers of Air Canada. Mark, I, I know from your comments, uh, the statement from CUPE, you are less than thrilled with this agreement. Why? Yeah, and thanks for having me on, Jane. Uh, you know, there's good news and there's bad news in here, and uh, I think you covered off some of the good news. On, on, a, on, a, on a note from our union, uh, we have about 10,000 uh, members that work for Air Canada, uh, flight attendants, cabin crew, uh, those types of jobs. And this announcement is good news for 2,000 of our members that are still working at Air Canada, and we're hoping that it'll bring some stability and security uh, going forward. We're also happy to see the government take a, uh, an equity stake in the company as well. It's something else that we were really pushing uh, from early on, making sure that this wasn't just uh, a handout to the company. And we're also happy to see that it's a loan, not a handout, right. and that the company will have to pay back what it borrows. So those, those are the positive things. But on the negative side is for you know our 8,000 members at Air Canada and Air Canada Rouge who were laid off last spring with, with no access to the wage subsidy, been waiting 13 months, hearing the government say over and over again that help is on the way. And they found out yesterday that that actually isn't the case. Um, we've been fighting for an aid package for this industry focused on people who keep uh, focus on air safety, the workers. And we had a commitment from the government that any aid package would uh, would directly flow to, to workers for the airlines. And that's clearly not uh, contained in this agreement. And, uh, you know, things like uh, not being able to access uh, the wage subsidy, the federal wage subsidy uh, for laid off workers, where our, our members could have accessed 75% of their wages at no cost to the company, which was uh, available to a lot of companies across this country. So, there's some good, but there's also some real concerns in this deal. So how have these 8,000 employees been supporting themselves until hopefully they do get called back? Are they on employment insurance right now? Yeah, basically, uh, absolutely. Uh, that and the other, you know, other programs the government's had in place directly through the government. But the, you know, the employer in this case, in, in our view, has really not stepped up and being a, a good corporate uh, employer. And, and that's been a real problem. Up with Air Canada for a number of years, but especially in the last year. We've seen a lot of other companies, including one of the other uh, airlines which we represent members at, WestJet, has actually done much more for the workers there than Air Canada has. Oh, tell us more, because we are still waiting to hear that deal. Well, I'm not talking about this specific deal with the government. We're hoping that that will happen soon and it'll mm-hmm. be a better deal. But I'm talking about uh, with, with our members at uh, WestJet. They were able to actually stay on payroll at 75% of a number of them. And, of course, it's confusing because there's different types of leaves uh, for these folks, furloughs, uh, you know, and then access to different uh, programs to the government as well. So what were you told in response to that, the, the wage subsidy, 75% of their salaries, and that would be uh, funded by the Canadian taxpayers? So why was that an issue for Air Canada? Uh, they just didn't want to go down that path. I mean, it, it, it's not as simple as it sounds because we do have collective agreements in place. There's issues around pensions and benefits. Uh, so it's not as, uh, you know, black and white as, as that. But the employer really did not want to have any uh, meaningful discussions about how we could assist those, those workers. And, and look, I get that there's a lot of Canadians that have, have suffered, that have lost their jobs uh, throughout this pandemic. It's been, it's been horrible for, for so many folks. But, you know, one of the important issues is coming out of the pandemic and, I'm really hoping that we're seeing some light at the end of this tunnel that we're going to need to have uh, a strong air industry in this country. And that includes uh, my members as flight attendants, includes pilots, includes uh, air traffic controllers, NAVCAN folks. Mm -hmm. We can't just go from uh, a lot of these folks doing nothing for 14, 15, 16 months and then being expected to to jump in a plane and and provide the services that we as Canadians uh, need when we're in the air. And on that note, are the is there any sort of guarantee that when the pandemic is over, these eight thousand workers will be called back? We have had assurances, and we haven't seen the text yet. But we I know we had a briefing for our local leaders uh, last night, and we have been assured that uh, we're not going to face some of the issues that other employers have uh, done, like some of the hotel workers across the country, who after a year have, have basically lost their jobs, their employment's been terminated, and uh, their their ability to return to those employers is, is in jeopardy and, and really not going to happen in many cases. Mark, we thank you for your perspective and your time. Thanks. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jim. Mark Hancock is the president of CUPE, which represents workers at Air Canada. Let's get reaction now from Dr. Gabor Lukic, president of Air Passenger Rights and airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, Dr. Carl Moore. Welcome, doctors. Welcome. Nice to be here. Good afternoon. Dr. Lukic, uh, Gabor, can I call you Gabor? <laughs> 
Of course. Of course. Um, A win for passengers and taxpayers and that this is not a bailout, but a loan. I disagree with the statement. Uh, This is a uh, bittersweet situation for consumers. On the one hand, they may be getting some refunds, although there is no enforcement mechanism in this entire package. And just this morning, we learned that Air Canada put out new terms and conditions which appear to negate, in more explicit language, passengers' rights to a refund in the situations like the pandemic. So it's far from being clear what Air Canada is going to do with tickets that you purchase starting today or tomorrow. And if those flights are cancelled, Air Canada may well try to pull the same trick all over again and point at its new terms and conditions. So what I understand here... Oh, re- go ahead, Dr. Moore. Uh, um, so uh, the other concern is that Uh, The refunds are funded by the public purse, not by the shareholders. We are talking about unsecured loans, which pose a significant risk in terms of whether those are or are not going to be repaid because uh, there are no assets to secure them. And uh, the equity which is involved is really a mere token, about 6% compared to 20 to 25% of equity that was involved in the bailout of Lufthansa in Germany. So the overall message is that it is acceptable to misappropriate consumers' property, consumers' money in Canada, and there will be no consequences. That is troubling. Okay, let's go to Dr. Carl Moore and get your overall reaction to the Air Canada deal. I think it's an excellent deal for Air Canada and for the government. I think uh, made some very interesting uh, approaches there. I can see the fine hand of Michael Sabia, the former head of the case depot, and of Bell Canada, and himself, a former, former senior go- uh, government official who's back in the government. Uh, it's something where you have a lot of Canadians who are going to be getting refunds, and so that's great news for them. So it's something where it's going to cost potentially Canadian taxpayers like you and I. But I, I liked a couple parts, but one was the, that the, the equity. It's a bit unusual in a sense in a deal like this, so we see a lot of um, governments around the world have equity positions Lufthansa, for example, and Air France by the French government and so on. So I think that's going to sell. In, they are hoping in a year or two when the share price of Air Canada goes up, the government will be able to, to rightly claim that they um, got an equity share, which has made money for the taxpayers of Canada. So that was an interesting get involved in the running of the airline. Governments are good at some things, business at others. Governments typically don't run airlines well is the lesson over the last 30, 40 years. Also, there was an interesting thing about the environment in there, which certainly the airline industry is concerned about the impact of airlines traveling and um, the new uh, C-series, now the A-series from Airbus, is environmentally much more friendly than previous generations. So it's an it's a issue which is one which the industry has leaned into, and so they're getting some encouragement for the government. So that was kind of interesting uh, addition that I was a bit surprised by. So I think overall positive both for Air Canada, for Canadians uh, in terms of having a viable um, major player, though we need to have WestJet and Transit and so other on, on board as well. We're talking about the new Air Canada deal with the Trudeau Liberals and uh, whether it's a, it's a good deal for Canadian passengers, Canadian taxpayers, uh, for Air Canada, for the workers of Air Canada. If you want to weigh in on the conversation, we always enjoy your comments as well. 416-360-0740. Did you, are you in a situation where you had booked a flight during the pandemic and obviously we're not able to take that trip in our still owed the money. Your stories are welcome. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-744-740. Gabor, you were just mentioning there that it's going to be very difficult for some passengers to be reimbursed. Now, the way that the finance minister Freeland uh, said it last night, she said the process will begin April 30th. Uh, There will be a way for you to get your money back. But uh, you seem to be casting some doubt on that. I'm quite doubtful about it because since last night, Air Canada put out new terms and conditions. The new terms and conditions appear to be explicitly purporting to negate what is a legal right by passengers which is getting a refund 
for flights that were canceled by the airline. I'm not talking about a situation where you cancel. I'm talking about a situation where the airline failed to operate a flight that you paid for. And what I'm seeing right in front of me in Air Canada's new terms and conditions issued today is an exception which says no involuntary refund is owed. Let me state again, no involuntary refund is owed. If the cancellation or delay outside of Canada's control was caused by a force majeure event of widespread magnitude and intensity. So clearly, um, COVID-19 is recognized as a force majeure event of widespread magnitude and intensity, although not all cancellations are caused by it to begin with. But of course, Air Canada blames every cancellation that happened pretty much since uh, March 2020 on COVID-19, even if it was a business decision to not operate a flight. But with this language, which goes, which flies in the face of a number of uh, precedents and laws, including provincial consumer protection laws, Air Canada will, is very likely trying to argue again that definitely what you purchase from now on, if they cancel it and they say, oh, it was COVID-19 cancellation, we get to keep your money. So instead of solving the problem, it seems that the federal government, by rewarding Air Canada for its poor behavior, has created a bigger, longer problem, which we are seeing already right now. So what, uh, what I'm reading in front of me here, under the agreement, refunds will be available for flights purchased on or before March 22nd, 2020 for travel after February 1st, 2020 that were canceled by either the customer or the airline. So you're saying that based on new information, that may or may not be the case. That's correct. Uh, what you are reading is a press release. What I'm reading is a legally binding terms and conditions. Okay, fair enough. The two are the two are not the same, and this is something we just found out uh, shortly before this program. We already put out a tweet on our Twitter feed with a screenshot. It's Rule 100D1 uh, of Air Canada's domestic and international tariffs that contain this provision. Uh, we certainly would like to hear some clarification from Air Canada. What on earth is happening? We'll need to uh, take a quick break here, but when we come back with our experts, Dr. Carl Moore, Dr. Gabor Lukacs, I want to ask them what is the best course of action for Air Canada passengers who are out money as a result of flights not taken during the pandemic. I will ask that question, and as well, you're welcome to call in and ask your questions too. Tell us your stories of flights that never happened, but that you are still owed money for at four. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about uh, the new Air Canada deal, and I'm getting reaction from Dr. Gabor Lukacs, president of Air Passenger Rights and airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, Dr. Carl Moore. This process to be reimbursed for trips not taken during the pandemic, Dr. Lukacs is telling us that there is some fine print and that it may not be as simple as the finance minister is making it out to be or as the press release from Air Canada is making it out to be. Uh, Dr. Moore, I'll begin with you. Um, and, and I'm looking for your calls as well. If you have a story about having to cancel a flight and are waiting for reimbursement, 416-360-0740. Dr. Moore, I've received a tweet Someone writes, I requested a refund last week for my flight that was canceled last summer. They said, sure, but pay us $200 a ticket or you get no refund. This individual writes, looks like Air Canada has mastered the art of extortion. People are upset. Well, they should be upset. But on the other hand, what we see is that, you know, they've come to a commitment with the government there. I'm reading, um, you know, the website here. says Air Canada, starting today, in cases where a customer's flight is canceled, rescheduled by more than three hours, we will now offer all customers a choice of receiving a refund, an Air Canada travel voucher, or the equivalent value in aero points with a 65% bonus. So if that's what they do, 
sounds like most people would be happy. Either you get your money back or you can get this bonus so that uh, you have some, you know, compensation for future travel beyond what you'd paid. So um, now whether they keep, you know, do they keep to that? I, you know, I, I've always found Air Canada to be a reasonably honorable company. So that seems like positive news. Gabor, what do you say about that? Uh, there may be more to well, what's I, on the website. I've read Air Canada's website myself. The trouble is that they are engaging in doublespeak. They put one information on their website in kind of a general information and a different information into their official legally binding terms and conditions, which is called a tariff. So if Dr. Moore would take a moment and just Google Air Canada domestic tariff, uh, he can find it there through 100D1, and he will find the new exception that was inserted there. This tariff was issued just today, according to our uh, experts, it was created yesterday at around 9 p.m. And uh, the text is very clear. I, I can. I, I also passed on to uh, to your assistant um, a screenshot of it. You you may want to read it into for the uh, listeners yourself. Uh, it's it's a it's an excerpt from the official terms and conditions, the official tariff, which says that in the event of events of the nature like COVID-19, there would be no involuntary refund. And I believe that Air Canada should really clarify its position yes. because it's engaging. It's been talking well, they should about update the tariffs and, you know, uh, legal departments. I'm very sorry. I just stated this was tariff issued the, today's date. It was created last night at uh, 9 p.m. and it carries April 13th, day 2021. Well, I'm reading from, you know, their website, and I'm sure you looked at it as well, Gabor. So clearly there's a, one of them's wrong. Uh, and I would agree with you that they should go by what they say on their website. That's a clear public statement, which they made in, you know, in working okay, with hang the government. On. So I think that should be the one that, um, the rules, for sure. Well, there, I mean, they're... If they, if they have it published on their website, certainly you can hang on to that uh, as a traveler who's trying to get money back. I mean, would it stand no, up I, if they've... If they, yeah. It's the problem with how things work, that under the Canada Transportation Act, it is the tariff, the terms and conditions, which are legally binding and enforceable. You could possibly make other legal arguments based on representations they make on their website. But in terms of what the actual terms and conditions, those are what they put in their tariff. And that's the whole problem, that the two things are inconsistent, not for the first time, mind you. But it sounds like, Gabor, uh, I mean, if you are out a few hundred dollars or possibly a couple of thousand dollars because of a trip not taken, what what would you suggest in light of the new information and uh, the details around this deal? I would suggest doing a statutory chargeback under your provincial statutes. Most provinces, including Ontario, has provisions that if you paid for a service but didn't receive them, you paid in advance, and you pay using a credit card, you have a way of compelling your credit card company to reverse those charges. And if they don't comply with that obligation, I would just claw back the money on the next bill and just consider the matter closed. Let the credit card then deal with the airline. Wouldn't that have been something you could have done uh, during the course of the pandemic, for especially for a flight last spring? You could, and we have been encouraging people to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, given that airlines, even Air Canada, seems to be having the money to refund people, uh, it even adds some moral strength to, to your position. So the airlines cannot say, well, we don't have the money to refund. So in that sense, it would be extra helpful. Uh, we have been encouraging people to do that, and in some cases, uh, people have been very successful with it. Dr. Moore, what are your thoughts about uh, passengers, how they can get their money back in light of conflicting information? Well, one is that, you know, we're talking about people who are owed money from last year. And so that's that's a different thing than a current tariff. And, you know, I I agree with Gabor that they should clarify, and I, I know which way that certainly I would feel they should go in the direction of their public statement and what the government has said as well. But we're looking at, for those who are owed money from last year, they should go to Air Canada's website and look for the process they put in place. It's, you know, it's the first day, so have a little bit of patience, but they will sort it out, is my uh, sense of, uh, of Air Canada. They will sort it out. And, you know, I, IT systems are imperfect. They'll probably be overwhelmed. 
So cut them a little bit of slack, but not too much. I want to get your reactions. We have a couple more minutes to go here. Uh, WestJet and the other airlines. Gabor, can we expect the same kind of agreement, the same sort of roadmap uh, solution? It's really hard to know. Uh, On the one hand, um, it seems that Air Canada is getting a sweetheart deal here with way more uh, cash than probably other airlines are going to get. Uh, I'm not sure how those airlines are going to feel about a government is taking an equity stake in them. Uh, on the other hand, um, it's quite possible that we may see events like this. The biggest problem, as I'm viewing it, is that we are seeing here negotiations over a matter that would warrant state coercion. A refund is not a favor, not a goodwill gesture. It's a legal right. Mm-hmm. It's a passenger's money. And if somebody is taking your car, if somebody steals your car, the police will bring it back to you. The same thing should have happened here with the passenger's money. You don't start negotiating with car thieves about, oh, well, you know, am I going to buy off this car that belongs to uh, its rightful owner? You just simply remove the car from the, the thief and bring it back to the person to whom it is, who's a property. Same, same uh, procedure should have been followed. Somebody's at your window, I think. <laughs> um, uh, and the final word from you, Dr. Moore, uh, in terms of what we can expect with the other airlines and uh, and pending agreements. Well, I think it'd be similar offers. Clearly, it's something where, you know, it's the major player. But WestJet, which is privately held, a different uh, circumstance from a viewpoint of the uh, the ownership position. But I think we'd see similar kind of things made for each airline and their specific needs. But I think um, prior to the budget next week, they wanted to get um, the big solution out there. Probably maybe a bit of a warning shot across the bows to Canadians saying, this budget is going to be a unusual one. We're going to have to offer a lot of support, way more than we have in the past. Um, Hold your horses. It's going to be an interesting ride. Yes. And uh, so will the recovery for uh, the airlines and the travel industry in general once we get through this pandemic. I almost said if we get through this pandemic, because some days it feels like that. Thank you both for your time on the Air Canada deal. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Dr. Gabor Lukic is president of Air Passenger Rights and airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University. Dr. Carl Moore was also with us. Jane, for Libby, uh, we will resume our conversation tomorrow. Inevitably, uh, we're looking to have a good chat about the third wave. And who exactly, which age group is being affected by the third wave? We've received new information from leading geriatrician, Dr. Samir Sinha, that people 60 and over represent just 15 percent of the current COVID cases, but they represent 90 percent of the deaths. So hardest hit in this pandemic still are older people. We will talk about that. And uh, until then, I wish you a good day. Stay tuned for the number ones at one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.